love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we are beginning the show today with just Willie in uh, in the studio. Banjo is asleep in the sun upstairs, so we'll see how long it takes for him to show up. <laughs> You'll probably hear the sound of a clunking pug momentarily. <laughs> Wow, we had a great time Friday night, didn't we? It was uh, uh, the watch party that we had on the uh, Freaks Group page on Facebook. Oh, my gosh. So we were learning how to do the internets. Um, <laughs> but I think overall it went really well. And we had so much fun uh, getting to interact and chat. And then we popped into a, a Zoom party going on afterwards. Uh, that was fun. Real quick. That was a blast. Um, so, yeah, we hope to do that kind of thing again sometime soon. Yeah. We uh, also have posted the full video of the show. It was the, uh, the Bijou Theater Show in Connecticut that we did on the 29th of February. That full um, video presentation, if you will, is available on our YouTube channel. Uh, there are links on our social media, and you can find it there. That's right. If you want to watch it. Okay. You get to go first today. Okay. So I wanted to tell you today uh, the story of Mark Inglis and Phil Duell. Mark Inglis was born in 1959 in New Zealand. Uh, he began work as a professional mountaineer in 1979 as a search and rescue mountaineer for Mount Cook National Park. Okay. Mount Cook National Park is home to New Zealand's highest peak. It's the Araki Mount Cook, um, which is about 3,754 meters high. Wow. It's about 12,000 feet. Um, it attracts international and New Zealand climbers, and the climbing experience is said to be very similar to uh, major mountain ranges of the world, like the Himalayas. So Mark Ingalls and fellow climber Philip Poole 
uh, were part of this Mount Cook Alpine Rescue Team. Alpine Rescue Team uh, works with about 15 to 25 incidents that require search and rescue assistance each year. It is actually a police responsibility, but the police kind of hand it over to the search and rescue team because they don't have the training. They don't have the people to be involved in this kind of thing. And it makes sense to have a specialized team who works on this kind of event. So Phil was new to this team. It's November 1982, and Mark and Phil decided that they would do a climb together. Uh, It's the only way that you can get to know a fellow climber is Mm -hmm. by climbing with them. And so they decided that they would uh, set out on this climb together, and that's how they were going to get to know each other and and work best together. So this was not a rescue mission. This was just uh, getting to know you. So they decided they were going to do this climb. And so what they decided to do was the classic New Zealand alpine climb. It was called the East Ridge. And it's a serious climb, but not an extreme climb. It's a scalloped ice ridge. It's divided into several sides. And uh, I don't know that much about climbing. It's not something that uh, I I get. So uh, sometimes there's language used in, in these descriptors. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I might say it not knowing what it means. Means. Okay. Let's fa- all just move along. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> See, I don't have a fear of heights mm-hmm. necessarily. I have a fear of, of falling to my death. So I could never do this. <laughs> but that being said, if I'm at the top of a huge skyscraper mm-hmm. looking off, I'm fine. I just don't want to hang off the edge of it. Okay, that's totally fair, okay. I think. All right, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of similar. I, I don't mind heights, uh, but if I was on the top of something that was tall and then a stiff breeze blew, mm. I might, you know, hunker down a bit. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So anyway, like I said, not extreme, but a serious climb, uh, very steep, and um, they they set off. And when you do these kinds of climbs, and this climb in particular, you have to kind of plan uh, meticulously to make sure that you're setting off at the right time, that uh, you're at certain peaks at the right time, Mm. um, that the conditions are the way that they should be for climbing. So they have a uh, a couple of huts along the trails, I guess. I, I I shouldn't say trails, I guess, but they have some huts for stopping and getting set. And, you know, one of the huts is kind of like the starting point. Okay. So it's it's like a base camp that's there permanently. Exactly. Okay. So they got up to the first base camp and they were assessing their situation and they did realize that they had forgotten a few things, which was kind of a bummer. One of those things was the closed cell sleeping pad that they use to keep their bodies off of the cold ice at night. How do you forget something like that? Did they remember (laughs) to bring beer? Because that would have been a real disaster. I don't think it's that kind of hike. So uh, they were both really grateful that they knew that this wasn't going to be a long hike because without those pads, it would have been a real bummer. And they also discovered that they didn't have a like a gas burner stove. Uh, They just brought snacks. 
Because again, it's not going to be a long hike. They did, though, have plenty of fluids. Um, They had the ability to melt snow. And uh, so 5 a.m. the next day, they set off. They said that from the beginning, the the hike was difficult. And the way that they had decided to go up the mountain maybe wasn't the best start because Mark led. Phil was in the back. And because Mark was a smaller man, he was making footprints that... Phil would then step into and then slide down further, Ooh. which it sh- they they assessed that maybe they should have done it the other way around because it was making each of them work harder than they needed to. The conditions were not ideal, not terrible, but not ideal. The snow was a little softer than they like it to be um, so that you're not working against, like with each step, you're not stepping into the snow and having to pull your foot out of the snow and trudge your way through. So there was a certain amount of trudgery. And the weather was building. Again, not bad because they wouldn't have set off if it was bad, but it wasn't great. The wind was increasing in intensity, though, and they were some males, some mare's tails were forming on the mountaintop. Mare's tails. I'm guessing that that is some sort of a snow formation caused by wind. That's exactly correct. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. You're so smart. That was just a, a guess. And handsome. And talented. Shut up. You're really, you're a triple threat. What the hell do you know? (laughs) So the weather started to worsen. And the general theory that um, Mark had talked about when deciding to continue with a, a hike like this or not, indecision means keep going. If you get to the point where you can't decide, that's when you know you need to stop. Makes sense. Oh, here comes Banjo. We're in here, dude. What a good boy. Hi. Right. So it's the evening of November 16th, and the wind has picked up, and it's getting very, very cold. So they are having a lot of trouble keeping their ropes straight in the wind, and they're having to scream at each other to be able to be heard. Wow. And finally, it was they weren't able to make a decision, so they knew they had to stop. So they found a little hole to nestle into. See, the way you you said that, it made it sound really cozy. It does sound cozy, right? But I'm guessing it wasn't cozy. No, it was not cozy. Um, It was about negative 5 degrees to negative 10 degrees Celsius. It's about a billion degrees below zero Fahrenheit, right? (laughs) 20 degrees Fahrenheit to negative 5 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. The hole wasn't big enough to stretch out in, uh, but you could kind of sit in there. There was a bit of a curve to it, and it was manageable for them both to be fully inside of it, but not, like, stretched out. They couldn't lay down. I don't think I'd want to in the cold. I'd want to huddle. No, Oh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. But they did take that time to assess their situation. Again, they went through their items to see what they had and uh, what kind of clothes that they they could share and how they could utilize their, their things the best way okay. while they were in this hole. Which, by the way, they decided to name Middle Peak Hotel, <laughs> which I think is very, very cute. <laughs> so they spent the night there. 
And when they woke up, it was still very windy, very cold. Uh, They got up, they got their boots on, they got their crampons on, and they went outside to take a look. It was November 17th, and they started out, and it was about 10 meters out of the hole before they realized that it was worse than it was when they went into the hole. So they got back into the hole, and they loosened their boots, they were starting to be very cold, obviously. Um, they had to take their socks off at one point because they were so sweaty. Oh, and man. it's like a weird combination of being too hot and too cold at the same time. So they were barefoot at one point. At in, one point. In a blizzard at the Mid-Peak Hotel. <laughs> Is that what they called it? Middle Peak Middle Hotel. Peak, okay. Well done, though. Which was a hole in the ground covered in snow. It was the end of the first day, and... At the end of the first day, Phil knew he was going to have suffered some sort of frostbite, at least. So it didn't take long before people on the ground started to notice that something was not as it should be. But, you know, with hikes, things can... Things can go awry. Uh, They're both experienced hikers. They they know what's up. I should say climbers, not hikers. Climbers. Mountaineers. Anyway, okay. So five days... They spent in the same routine. They would monitor the food. They would get up in the morning. They would boot up. They would go outside and see, yeah, this isn't doable. We cannot leave in this weather. Five days. Five days. They're eating only a few hundred calories per day, burning thousands of calories per day. Not drinking a lot of fluids, but losing fluids. The thing is, uh, Mark reflected on the old saying, if you don't eat, you don't shit. Mm. Which worked out really well for them mm-hmm. because they didn't have to expose their bodies sure. to to poop. Uh, but uh, then there's a second part to that saying, which is, if you don't shit, you die. Uh-huh. That's a tough decision. So it became, yeah, it became a, a worry for sure. Uh, the big worry by day three was feet. Um, Mark's toes had started to freeze and swell. And he knew that he was in for some serious frostbite at that point. The attempt to get out on that fifth day was pretty half-assed. Um, he knew that his feet were so frozen at that point, it, it would be pretty difficult. And by Saturday, that they, they knew that they were only going to get out with help. I cannot imagine the pain that, that they must have been feeling, being exposed to the cold for that length of time. Yeah. I get really cranky when I have to pump gas in sub-zero uh, weather. Just standing out there for a few minutes holding a gas nozzle. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I got frostbite. I drive across town to have someone else pump it for me. Um, <laughs> I'm the worst. Aren't you fancy? I'll pump my own gas in the summer, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing it in the winter. Okay. So by Sunday, the sixth day, they had given themselves anywhere from 36 to 48 hours to live. Their food was almost gone. They were becoming increasingly weak. They had very little body fat left to burn. And they were both very concerned that someone was going to get hurt trying to help them. Hmm. That's another concern because you know that people have to put their lives at risk to save you. And that's what they do for a living. They know the risks involved. So they were probably feeling really stupid and cold. Yeah. A combination of cold and stupid. And The two of them dealt with being trapped in this tiny hole in very different ways. So Mark wanted to talk and 
share stories about his family and talk about his favorite recipes. Mm -hmm. And Phil, not so chatty. So Phil was really irritated by Mark's wanting to talk. And Mark felt alone because Phil didn't want to talk to him. This is a tough way to get to know somebody. For real. We're stuck in a hole for five days. It was very frustrating for Mark, very annoying for Phil. uh, But there was no way to get away from each other, obviously. Um, They were just forced to kind of compromise. Like Phil would talk a little and Mark would shut up sometimes. This is like a really extreme version of this. The odd couple? (laughs) Well, yeah, but I was thinking uh, self-quarantine. Where was the uh, article we read that uh, they're expecting the divorce rate to skyrocket once the self-imposed isolation ends? That I was thinking about. And also I thought yesterday, probably the number of people with bangs, like bangs is going to become a very popular (laughs) hairstyle because everyone's trapped alone in their house. And they who I mean, I've been tempted to cut bangs. Mm -hmm. I don't look good with bangs. Mm. Anyway, by now, things on the ground are happening. By day three, uh, people on the ground were really concerned and they knew that they they probably were on the job, let's say. It was raining and blowing in the village down below, and they knew that probably the weather had gotten really bad up at the top. So what they decided to do was get ready to go up on the mountain the next day. Friday morning, and this is down down on the ground. This is before um, we're kind of backtracking a little bit to, to talk about what's going down on the ground. Friday morning, the weather was talking about the the intense wind up there. So they got ready. They got dressed. They did their their gearing up thing. They did their mental exercise of, you know, what it means to go up on the mountain and perform a rescue. Uh, but the weather was so bad that they couldn't leave and and head up. And this went on for several days. So again, on the ground, they're mirroring what's happening in this little tiny cave with Phil and Mark, they're trying to go up to help, but the weather's too bad. While Phil and Mark are trying to leave, but the weather's too bad. And I'm sure because these guys are pros, they had filed some sort of a report as to what route they were going to take. Yes. And on the ground, they knew what supplies that Phil and Mark had. So they knew that Mm. they only had so much food. They knew they couldn't make it last past this day. So they kind of had like a dead day where they were like, we have to get them by this day or they're dead. It's not good. It's now day seven in the cave. Mark can hear something and he knows that familiar sound of a helicopter. On the ground, they had been able to get their resources together and they sent a helicopter up to rescue Mark and Phil. However, the wind was such mm. that the helicopter crashed oh, no. into the side of the mountain. Oh my God. Mark and Phil heard this happen. Holy shit. They knew what the sound of the helicopter was, and then they heard it crash. So how terrifying to be in that situation. And uh, luckily, no one in the helicopter was killed. Oh, my God. I know. But Mark and Phil didn't know this. They just know that their chance of being rescued has just been smashed into the side of a mountain and possibly people died trying to save them. So emotionally, they're not doing great. And Phil, by this point, was incredibly weak. He um, wasn't able to 
do even the small helpy things in the cave that he wanted to be able to do. Like Mm. he was just sitting there at this point. The next day, they heard a helicopter again. And this one didn't crash too, did it? It did not crash. Okay. No, but they weren't able to get in close enough to get Mark and Phil. What they did instead was drop off a bag of supplies. Well, that's good. But what about the people that survived the the, uh, previous crash? They're fine. Were they rescued by the other chopper? Oh, they were. Yep. They've been brought back down to base. Okay. They're good. So there's really not any room to move around in this hole, as we've discussed. Um, And the doorway is pretty small, but they were able to get their their bag of goods into uh, the the hole. And then the, the helicopter went away. So the helicopter rescue people... They know where these two guys are yes. at this point. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mark was able to get their attention by way of waving oh my God. while the helicopter was coming over. Phil, as I said, was right. unable to even like wave at this point. He mm. was not doing great. Phil uh, strapped himself to a rope. He, uh, what do they call it, belayed out of the entrance of the hole and snagged the bag and uh, then got a second bag, and they said it was like Christmas. Mm. There were sleeping bags. Mm. uh, There were little booties, thermoses of hot fluids. There was even one of those little stoves and cans of food, even some chocolate. They were thrilled, and they knew now that people knew where they were. That must have been a huge morale lift in and of itself, just knowing, okay, they know we're here. They know we're alive. They're going to do what they can. Let's just hunker down with our hot soup. Exactly. Um, so it's day eight. And in that bag of supplies was also a radio. So they were able to get messages from family, um, which they said helped a lot, except what the fuck do you say? <laughs> you know, it's it's a real stilted conversation. And it was described as being like, hey, Sorry about this. Don't mean to make you upset, you know, and it's right. okay. We're yeah. going to get you. Love you. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, At least it wasn't a Zoom meeting because <laughs> I would have looked even more like shit than I do right now. <laughs> Always concerned self, about the hair. Self-imposed isolation. Hmm. Unfortunately, the radio died not long after that. Um, which really was more upsetting for those on the ground sure. than it was for, for those in the hole. And finally, there was a break in the weather. It was the first break in days, and it allowed the helicopter to fly back up to the peak. So at day 12, Phil has a chest infection. It's getting really bad. He is desperately trying to talk about recipe pages and uh, cookbooks (laughs) with Mark. Mark is not having it. (laughs) (laughs) They're right down to cookbooks. (laughs) Discussing your favorite recipes. Day 13. It's Sunday and they are starting to fade. I think even cookbooks aren't fun to talk about anymore. Mm. And... um, Fortunately, that night, the wind started to chill out and the sky started to clear. That's when they started to hear this helicopter activity again. Now, keep in mind, by this time, New Zealand news is all over this. I can imagine. Um, it is a ongoing drama via their TV sets. And the real frustrating thing is... Everyone wants to know what's happening. It's day 13. Mm. There is no news, guys. I mean, we don't. they don't have the radio anymore. They just know, like, we're still trying and 
don't know that they're probably not dead. All right. Um, Which I'm sure sucked for everyone. But day 14, the helicopter goes up. They are able to get close enough so that Mark can attach his harness, his uh, climbing harness, Mm -hmm. to the soft stretcher that they have attached to the helicopter. Okay. They lift Mark out, and he is flying above this mountain, and they get him to safety. Phil... Uh, is in a situation where he is unable to do these things by himself. So one of the rescuers goes down with the helicopter rope and gets him, Mm. attaches him to his own harness, lifts him up, and they are uh, back in the, the helicopter together. It's warm. They know that they've been rescued. I'm sure that was an overwhelming feeling for both of them. And they are uh, brought to the hospital safely. Thankfully, no more helicopter crashes. That would have really been sucky. Right. Um, So at the hospital, the assessment was made that both men had suffered such severe frostbite that their legs both had to be amputated. Mm. Both men, though, remained very passionate about climbing and the outdoors. Both have gone on to summit Mount Cook since then. Oh, my God. In 2006, Mark became the first double amputee to conquer Mount Everest. No shit. Uh, During his climb, uh, he'd been raising funds to provide artificial legs for disabled Tibetans who live under the shadow of Everest. Um, While he was on that climb, he lost five fingertips and more flesh on his legs to frostbite, though that didn't affect his attitude at all. He said to the New Zealand Herald, when you lose your legs at 23, something like this is just a minor hiccup, just a bump in the journey, really. Wow. Um, In one way, I admire him, (laughs) but I, on the other hand, cannot identify with that at all. If I lost both of my legs mountain climbing, I mean, I, I would still pursue other things in life and make a difference, try to try to have an active lifestyle. But climbing a mountain wouldn't be one of the things on my list anymore. Absolutely did not stop him. And it's something that he was passionate about. So, you know, it's hard for me to say whether I would or wouldn't because I'm not passionate about it. So it's hard. You right, know, right, right, right. Um, who's to say? But I, I think it's incredible and so inspirational. And uh, the idea that the attitude is like, nah, no big deal. You know, I just <laughs> just keep going. Just lost five of my fingertips and yep. more of that leg flesh. Yeah. Meh. What's a little more? I guess it is indeed uh, perspective. I certainly respect a person's drive and love for that sort of uh, adventure. But that is so far removed from anything that I think that I would enjoy doing mostly because of the whole you know dying thing um but good for them i think that um that's really interesting because i love the outdoors i love adventure i will go just about anywhere and try just about anything um but mountain climbing just doesn't do it for me i don't see the appeal i like the idea of being up there and looking at the views, mm-hmm. the views I get, but the whole conquering the mountain thing isn't something that's within me. It doesn't, it, that doesn't call to me. I got really uh, sweaty and woozy on the ski lift uh, going up to the top of the mountain in, uh, what was it, St. Martin, that we uh, we, we went on the world's uh, steepest and longest 
zip line. Mm-hmm. Just steepest, not okay. longest. Okay, a steepest zip line right down the side of a friggin' mountain. Mm. And oh, sure, in the brochure, it sounded great. <laughs> but as we're going up in the ski lift and I'm looking around me, I'm going, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? And then I'm at the top. And you're like, yee, let's go, let's go. And we're waiting in line, you know, and I'm thinking, this is not going to end well. Probably by the time I'm halfway down the zip line, I will have soiled my linens. And by the time I get to the bottom, I probably will have, in addition to that, thrown up. You did great. But yeah, I did it and it was fun. And you're like, let's go again. I'm like, no, there's a bar here at the bottom. This is, this is where I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to have adventures here. You go right ahead. That is also an inspirational story. Thank you for sharing, JG. <laughs> yep, this one time <laughs> I went on a zip line and had a beer. So it equates pretty much to what these guys went through. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. Found this article on the Huffington Post. Uh, these are people that failed in life and went on to become very, very successful. Number five, Beyonce. When she was nine years old, her group Girls Time, with a Y, appeared on Star Search and lost. In 96, after signing to Columbia Records, the group had uh, huge internal drama, forcing the departure of two members. Beyonce is now worth 500 million. Way to go, Bay. Number four, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, at the age of 17, had his first software company. It was called Trafodata, which analyzed raw traffic logs. And that company did fail. However, I would argue that having your own company at 17 is a, is a win anyway, <laughs> regardless of what happens to it. He's worth like, what, $80 billion Something now, like so that. he's doing okay. Yeah. Number three, Dr. Seuss. Of course, one of the most celebrated children's authors of all time. His goal was to earn his PhD in literature from Lincoln College, Oxford, but failed and dropped out of school. After he wrote his first book, it was rejected 28 times. Wow. But he didn't give up. And... By the time he passed in 1991, he had sold over 600 million copies of his books in 20 different languages. Number two, Henry Ford. Henry Ford's first company went bankrupt. His second company also went south when uh, he had a dispute with his partners and he was forced to walk away with only the rights to his name. Um, But in the end, he helped bring transportation to the masses in America and throughout the world. And number one, Jim Carrey. He's a firm believer in the power of the law of attraction. Uh, He grew up extremely poor as a child and he didn't have his fame handed to him. At the age of 15, Kerry actually worked as a janitor to help pay his family's bills. And during his first performance at a club in Toronto, he was booed off the stage. Of course, there's that famous story where he wrote himself a check for $10 million. That's right. Just kept it in his wallet until he did, in fact, earn $10 million for, I think it was, The Mask. Do you remember that bit he used to do? He remembers talking to his father. Dad, are we poor? Well, no, Jim. Jim, as long as we have each other and and we love each other, we'll never be poor. Now get in the dumpster. <laughs> the Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, 
if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our Aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the Aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Box of Oddities. It's not for everyone. So the other day we talked about Albert Einstein and his uh, brains 
and Eyeball's journey mm-hmm. after his death. And we got this message from Christina. My grandmother, who passed in March at the age of 103 and three quarters, worked with Albert Einstein at Princeton. She didn't realize who he was in the beginning days of work. She noticed this man who never wore socks and <laughs> was always poorly dressed and had must up hair walking to work. Many times, she would stop and ask him if he needed a ride. He refused for a while, but then decided to take her up on it. They became friends during that time. I loved hearing this episode. Well, I love your story. Holy crap. Your grandmother gave Albert Einstein a ride. Yeah, not many people can say that. Yeah, I gave Albert Einstein a ride once. (laughs) On January 17th, 2004, a whale died. Aww. It uh, beached itself on the southwestern coast of uh, Taiwan. Researchers at uh, the university, uh, the, the Kong University, said that enough of the whale remained to allow for an examination by marine biologists. This is according to NBC News. It was a male specimen, the largest whale ever recorded in Taiwan. Oh, wow. And it drew the attention of local media um, and just people in general because of the size of its penis. Oh, okay. Its penis measured some five feet, according to the Taipei Times. Quote, more than 100 city residents, most of them men, have reportedly gone to see the corpse to experience the size of its penis, the newspaper said. Okay. A professor, Wang Cheng Ping, of the National Chengkong University, went to perform a postmortem, or wanted to perform a, a, a postmortem examination. During his initial observations, the whale was, in his opinion, an older bull, weighed about 50 tons, 17 meters in length, and it was the largest whale, as, as I mentioned, ever recorded in Taiwan. He ordered the whale to be moved to to a wildlife reservation area, and his university head said, no, you're not bringing this whale here. How do you even move something that big? It took a lot of work. It took three large cranes and 50 workers, more than 13 hours, to move the whale onto the back of a giant truck. Taiwan News reports that uh, while the whale was being moved, the large crowd that had gathered to look at its penis continued to grow. The crowd, not not the penis. Um, more than 600 local residents and curiosity seekers um, were there watching, along with vendors who had set up to sell snacks and hot drinks. Oh, geez. Because it was getting chilly out on the beach, I guess, that time of year. Right. So they're all standing around watching the workmen try to haul away this giant dead whale. Um, the whale carcass, finally, they secured it to the back of the truck and they slowly pulled away. They drove down some side roads. Then they entered the city, the center of the city, en route to the uh, wildlife preserve, and the 50-ton whale exploded. Oh. The explosion was a result of the buildup of gas. Sure. Inside a decomposing sperm whale. Yeah, that's what, that's what happens. But this was unusual because it exploded from its back. And so they assumed that probably it had uh, it had been hit by a boat, a ship, and had weakened that part of the area. Oh, sure. So it just exploded. Oh. It splattered blood and entrails all over the surrounding shop fronts, bystanders, the cars. The explosion did not, however, cause injuries to prevent researchers from performing 
the necropsy on the whale. Over the course of a year, Professor Wang completed a bone display from the remains of the whale. The assembled specimen and uh, some of the preserved organs and tissue are on display in a museum and have been since uh, April 8th, 2005. Now, exploding whales, not that uncommon. It does happen quite a bit. Why they decided to drag it into the middle of a densely populated city before, you know, they had checked on that is beyond me. And again, this is because of the buildup of gases from decomposition. But there's a story of a whale that exploded for a much different reason. This happened on November 9th in 1970. A 45-foot, 8-ton sperm whale washed ashore near Florence, Oregon, along the southern coast of Oregon. In addition to the the smell, because big decomposing thing, local officials were concerned that people were curious about the carcass and they'd come down and climb on it and they'd fall in or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the agency responsible for Oregon beaches, the uh, Oregon State Highway Division, which I think is now called the Oregon Department of Transportation, was called in to remove the whale. So they call up the U.S. Navy munitions experts. What? Yeah. And decide to treat the carcass like they would a giant boulder that they were trying to move during road excavation. Mm. They decided, yeah, we're we're just going to blow it up. The idea was to blow it into little tiny bits of pieces that were small enough for seagulls and other critters to uh, to to eat. So they would be returning it to the okay. earth. Okay. So they planted like 20 cases of dynamite on the leeward side of this whale facing the land. They thought that would that would do the trick. Once again, a crowd of spectators showed up. Local reporters gathered on the beach on the 12th of November of 1970, about a quarter mile from the carcass. These um, munitions experts expected the whale to explode in small pieces that are easy for seagulls to digest. Nomable bits. Yes. Didn't quite work out that way. The beach erupted in a 100-foot-high column of sand and whale, Larry Bacon reported in the Register Guard. Quote, Chunks of the animal flew in every direction and spectators began to scream and run for cover when they glimpsed large pieces soaring overhead. That's how I envisioned it. What is wrong with you? (laughs) It's estimated that the gore rose about 100 feet in the air. In the background, now there is a news report of this from KATU. Local news reporter Paul Lindman and his uh, photojournalist partner Doug Brazil were there doing a story for it. Sure. And so the story is is available and you can watch it on YouTube. Oh, jeez. Now, I'm sorry. Did the munitions experts not recognize i mean do they they know what sploding is yeah yeah in theory i guess so but, but uh these these pieces that they were hoping to be you know fun size whale pieces for the seagulls turned out to be um not that both the reporter and the cameraman had to run to escape the flying blubber it was uh, so big that one chunk flattened a car oh my goodness the photojournalist Doug Brazil said it came down 
as this oil rain on your jacket. It was horrible, and the smell, it was just sickening. Lindman recently said, I can conjure it up 40 years later if I think about it. I can still smell that smell. And I guess the smell was only part of it. There was a guy there that was, uh, his name was Mr. Umenhofer. He decided to take his son to view the, uh, the blubber blast, you know, because it's a good family outing. He had just bought this brand new Cadillac sedan. And Umenhofer's son said, as it started to come down, a big chunk headed in our direction. It went boom. It bent dad's new car into a V. Oh my God. Dad goes, my car. My dad bought it from Olds Dunham Cadillac. And their slogan, ironically, was, come in and we'll give you a whale of a deal. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I... Yeah. I... I cannot fathom taking my child to go see an exploding animal. Those were different days. Are they? Are they? Uh, Because I know a lot of people right now are going, no, I'd go see that. Yeah. Umenhofer said that uh, the state of Oregon actually footed the bill to replace uh, his dad's car. Oh, I'm sure. Which was a beautiful, there's a picture of it. I'll show it to you. There's a, it it was a beautiful brand new Cadillac sedan. (laughs) And and this picture of it, it is, it's like bent in a V with a big chunk of whale in the middle of it. Was anyone injured? Nope. No one was harmed by the explosion or the falling debris. Chunks of the whale had to be collected and buried, obviously. KT, uh, KATU television news reporter Paul Hinman provided a memorable account at the end of his uh, report. He summed it up by saying, quote, The blast blasted blubber beyond believable bounds. Now, I'm surprised that they didn't blast the small big bits. <laughs> Just keep it, keep it going? Yeah. yeah. Here's a little known fact. When, when the reporter and the cameraman flew back to Portland, they left the film. Oh, no. Behind, they forgot it, and somebody had to uh, to drive it up to the television station up to Portland. According to some studies, including one by the BBC, it's the most watched news uh, TV news report of all time. What on the internet? That is terrible. I got my information from Oregon Encyclopedia, KVAL TV. BeachConnection.com, NBC News, and Wikipedia. For about a decade now, November 12th, the day that it happened, has actually acquired the greeting of Happy Exploding Whale Day. Oh, Jesus. You've, people in that area will just greet each other that way on the 12th. Sure. It's been going on for a while now. And it happens in Portland, Oregon, especially in bars during that week. I so, bet that there are, like, drink specials. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every year, it seems that uh, new bizarre things surrounding the exploding whale story come to light. There's a celebration that's held by locals called Exploding Whale Day. Oh, man. Is it like a fair? It's kind of like that. It's a it's a beachside type of, uh, of I don't know, like a carnival atmosphere. Wow. Yeah. Now, the guy, the engineer who headed up the project mm-hmm. never spoke to the media. His last contact was with the uh, news reporter, Lindman, not long after it happened, and he complained bitterly, it blew up in my face. And this coming year, the 12th of November, marks the 50th anniversary of the exploding Oregon whale. Wow. No, 
that an animal died. I'll give you that. But it's hilarious that a guy who bought a brand new Cadillac had it crushed by whale blubber. <laughs> That's hilarious. <sighs> I mean, if the whale had to die, at least we got something out of it. The story really does have it all. <laughs> there it is. I've actually had a lot of um, requests for that story. But as I was digging, I found out, you know, hey, whales explode all, all the time for, for various reasons. It's true. It's true. All right, so that's it. Um, I'm going to go clean up this whale blubber. <laughs> I cannot believe that you took the time to find exploding whale sound effects. It took me a half an hour. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> All right. Put that together. Yeah, All right, well, we, uh, we enjoy hanging out with you. Thanks so much for making time for us every week. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until next time, <laughs> keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.